If you've got a Bible, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Even though the sermon text will only be one verse, and I'll read it to you a few times, I do think you'll be helped to have your Bible open to 1 Peter. I want to show some of the surrounding context for some of our applications. Before I read, let me point out that leaving, departing, saying goodbye is sometimes the most painful and difficult experience that you will have as a human. Consider just a few examples. You're a Syrian or Ukrainian family and you've been forced to depart your home because of war. You have a close friend, a fellow church member, and they get relocated and you have to say goodbye. You have a husband or a father. They walk out of the house. They don't say goodbye and they never come back. Worst of all, the pain and sadness that comes when you have to say goodbye to the person you love the most in this world as they're lying on their deathbed and they breathe their last. Goodbyes, departures, leaving are some of the most painful and difficult experiences in life. There are bad departures. On the flip side, there are good departures. Saying goodbye can be really hard, but it can also be beautiful, encouraging, uplifting. Think of these examples. A single woman sells everything that she has, and a church sends her thousands of miles away to preach the gospel to the unreached. It's a hard goodbye, but it's glorious. How about the blessing of seeing your child grow up, move out of the house? Some parents are saying, please, Lord. As they begin a new career or they get married, hard goodbye, but wonderful, beautiful, encouraging. The pride of watching a pl platoon of soldiers march into battle as they leave home to protect you at home. But best of all, the incarnate Son of God ascending into heaven and taking his seat at the right hand of God. It's hard. It's paradoxical, isn't it? I remember reading one book early on in my studies on the Ascension, and the author said, who here really thinks the Ascension's a good strategy? Here you have the resurrected Son of God, alive from the dead, only 40 days of time on this earth. And you'd think, all right, Acts chapter 1, let's storm the Roman Empire. Come on, is now the time? Like you can understand why all of the disciples would be thinking that. That's what you and I probably think as well. You're coaching a team. It's the fourth quarter. Game is on the line, and the best player walks off the court and out of the stadium. You're thinking, this is not a good time to leave. Far too often, that's what we think the ascension is. And my hope is that after tonight, you'll have one little verse to help you understand the basics of the ascension and why this is one of those good goodbyes. If I were to sum it in one sentence... This is my take on 1 Peter 3.22. The greatest human person is now 
in the highest place of power. There's three very important P words here. A person, a place, and power. Now, hear this in the text and see if you can see what I'm seeing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been, been subjected to him. First, the person. The greatest human person is now in the highest place of power. That's the ascension. Jesus Christ is the one who has gone into heaven. It's pretty obvious from verse 18 and following. Jesus Christ, the one who suffered once for sins, verse 18 says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Notice that in verse 21, that our baptism is through the appeal of a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's who the subject is of verse 22. Jesus Christ, the resurrected man from the dead, has gone into heaven. And he is the greatest human that has ever walked the earth. And his ascension is the greatest ascension that's ever happened. And for some of you who haven't been studying the ascension like I have, let me just point something fairly obvious out, actually. Jesus' ascension is not unique in one sense. There are lots and lots of ascension stories in literature. There's lots of ascensions in the Old Testament. But Jesus declares in John 3.13 that no one has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man, the one who descended from heaven. So there is something unique and great about the ascension. Enoch walked with God in Genesis chapter 5, and then he was taken, the writer of Hebrews says. He, he was not. He didn't die. The great prophet Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind and taken to heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2. Ezekiel and Isaiah had incredible heavenly visions that took them all the way into the throne room of heaven. Paul and John both share their own personal experiences of being caught up into heaven. Outside of the Bible, there's dozens and dozens of ascension stories, and some would even argue that the ascension of Christ is just a copycat of these other ascension stories. I think they're wrong. I think that this is the greatest human and the greatest ascension, and it doesn't even compare whatsoever to these other stories. While I was in Dubai in the month of February, guess what? It was ascension day. I was looking up restaurants to go eat with my family, and this says in the little Google Maps details, hours may be subject to change for the ascension of Muhammad. It was Ascension Day. It's like, of all days to be in Dubai. A human going into heaven is not that special is my point. It's in the Old Testament. It's outside the Bible. It's in the Bible. So then you should be wondering, what is it about the ascension of Jesus Christ that makes him unique or distinct? It's that he's the greatest human. The greatest human because he is a human from heaven. This is what he meant in John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended after first descending. There's an incredible book by a guy named Alan Segal, and he is a Jewish scholar, and he does all of this ridiculous work on every ascension story that you could think of. And one of the things he points out, even as a Jew, even though he's not a Christian, is that what's interesting about the Christian story 
is that the ascending story of an ascension begins first with a descent from heaven. And this, I believe, is part of what sets it apart. When you read through the Gospels and when you read through the stories of the New Testament, you will notice that Jesus Christ is a man from heaven. He is the Son of God who has become incarnate. So he is from heaven. His origins predate his earthly body. So there's all kinds of prophets and people that have claiming ascension stories, but none of them talk about pre-existing and living before their earthly existence. There's all kinds of stories of people that come and see something fall down from heaven, whether in the Bible or outside the Bible. But where do you have a person taking on human body, descending from heaven to earth, and then returning back to heaven? Jesus' ascension to heaven stands alone as the one who came from heaven, lived on earth, and then returned. In other words, it's really not a departure story. It's a coming home story. It's a return. A welcome back. Another reason why Jesus is the greatest human person is because look at chapter 3, verse 18. He is the only righteous human that ever walked this earth and never sinned. Peter says this previously in chapter 2, if you want to flip your Bibles over, and you'll notice that right before talking about the cross, 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There is no human that righteously obeyed the law, never sinned with his mind, never sinned with his lips, never sinned with his motives, never sinned with his actions. Greatest human that's ever walked this earth. Sinless. We would be guilty for just the words we spoke this week, if I had to guess. He never once sinned in any way you could imagine sinning. Mind, heart, words, actions. The final reason I want to give you for why he's the greatest human. He came from heaven while on earth he was perfect. And then here's your final reason. He went into heaven as the first of the new creation. Answer this question. How many people have physically been raised from the dead as part of a new creation agenda from God? Answer one. Now, there are resurrection stories. You might think of Lazarus. You might think of those people that came out of the tombs when Jesus died on the cross in Matthew chapter 27. So, yes, there's resurrection stories. There's even resuscitation stories, people that flatlined and then died on a football field earlier in the NFL season and then came back to life. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something utterly unique and different. A man died. That's one thing. He was buried. It's another thing. He stayed dead for three days. Then he did not just rise again. He has a new resurrected body unlike any human body that's ever existed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he is like you're gardening a giant garden and there's a seed that pops up first before all the others. He's the first seed that popped up of this great harvest that is to come. 
You, my friends, will be the ensuing harvest when you are raised from the dead. Righteous or unrighteous, you'll be raised. So remember that what makes Jesus distinct is that he is the one who came from heaven, who lived perfectly on the earth, and then he rose again as part of the new creation agenda. He's the greatest human that's ever walked this earth, and he's the greatest human that's ever entered into heaven. It's both. Therefore, the big idea of chapter 3, verse 22, he, Jesus Christ, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him, is this. The greatest human person is in the highest place of power. Ascension Day is a day to celebrate a past event that 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, historically, in human history, the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, the perfect sinless one who died for the unrighteous. That past event happened. And so we commemorate it. We mark our calendars. We set aside a Thursday evening and we say, let's celebrate the ascension. But here's one of the coolest things about ascension. Everything you could possibly think of regarding the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel, all of the major tenets of the creeds, all either have to do with something either in the past or in the future, with one exception. Jesus' heavenly session at the right hand of the Father, the ascension, culminates all of the past events and brings you and me to the very important question that too many of us never ask. Hey, what's Jesus up to right now? What's, what's he doing? The theologian, the Australian one, Peter Orr, rightly and helpfully points out, Christians today too often focus only on what Jesus has done in the past or what he's going to do in the future. I mean, just pause right here in this quote from Peter Orr. My guess is that you've heard a lot about Jesus' birth, you've heard a lot about Jesus' death, and you've heard a lot about Jesus' resurrection, all glorious good things that you've heard a lot about. And many of you have probably heard or been around Christians who are overly fascinated with the second coming of Jesus. When's it going to happen? When's it going to look? What's it going to look like? What's the timeline? So what Peter Orr is trying to say is that we're really focused on past events, and we're really fascinated with future events. But almost none of us are thinking about, what's Jesus doing right now? And the glorious good news of the ascension is that you know the answer. Our text gives us one of the big answers, but there's more of them. Our text tells us he's reigning in power. And everything and everyone is subjected under the right hand of Jesus, the, the mighty feet of Jesus who's at the Father's right hand. The second big answer is what we get from the book of Hebrews, which is he is our high priest, interceding for us, praying for us. His self-offering sacrifice is an advocate that is eternally before the Father, and therefore you are united with him and that perfect sacrifice. But our text wants to highlight the power of Christ the King as the son of David, reigning and ruling, and everything being subjected to him. So, what's Jesus doing right now? He's alive. Did he zip off his fleshly body? Incorrect, false, no. Ascension wasn't to dissolve his material physicality. 
Jesus forever remains the Son of God who is incarnate, in carne, in flesh. How encouraging is this? Any of you feel like this world could be a lot better? Look up into the heavens and realize that the greatest sign of future hope is that earth is now sitting in the throne of heaven. The things of earth, the dust of earth sits on the throne of heaven, representing us, interceding for us, ruling. He's at the right hand. He's over all angels, authorities, and powers. I hope you're starting to see why this is a good goodbye. This is a good kind of departure. But if you're struggling to make sense of all of this, and I don't want to imagine that it's easy to just get it in the first go, I did want to help all of us out. So, think of it this way. If the whole world was a giant house, so picture your house, but just a lot, lot bigger, and everybody in the world is in it. And you're living in this giant house, and all of the power goes out. So there's no lights, there's no outlets, and there's no internet. In order to return the power, you call the electric company, and in our story, this illustration, that's heaven. The house with power is earth. The electric company that has the ability to turn the power on is heaven. Heaven is the source and the power for all of life in the house. So the heavenly electric company sends their technician to come and diagnose the problem. And this technician gets to work. And as he works, he perfectly and masterfully does everything that's required while on earth. But says this, I have to go back. I have to go back to the the power plant. I must reconnect the power between your home and the electricity in our heavenly source of light and life. In this case, if this technician, even in a kind of simple illustration, they said, I need to go back and I need to get something in order to make this whole thing work, you would think, well, the job's not done and the lights are still out, but it's good news that you left. Like, if you're convinced that everything that could be checked and everything that could be done while at the house was done, then you definitely want that technician to leave. And that's the case that we have with the ascension. Jesus Christ has fully accomplished everything that was needed in full obedience of every command. He died on the cross and fully paid for all sins. There was nothing left to do. He rose again from the dead. But there's a problem. It's like the the linkage between heaven and earth still needed to be replugged in and attached. And in order for that to happen, the Bible makes it really clear. He needed to return. The heaven and earth separation that happened from Genesis chapter 3 onward, where sin separated humans from the presence and the power of God. Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven, it's like plugging things back together, reconnecting the lifeline for life and love, joy. 
And this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to think about this great work of Christ and about how we have blown our circuits in our home and we have messed things up, but he and his kindness came down into our world and did everything that he could to fix our home, but it was necessary for him to ascend, turn things back on, and then he promises to return. And in this illustration, it would be as if like parts of the house start working, lights start flickering on. Some of you experience the light and the power of the, the ascension and the outpouring spirit. But some of us we don't like what the light exposes and we prefer the darkness. And so we hate the ascension. We want Jesus to be stuffed away and we want to get busy living in the dark. And so I want to ask you, do you want the light? Do you long for the light? Not just in your own heart, but in your home, your family, your neighborhood, your world. There's a lot of darkness. And the good news of the ascension is we have access to the power center. The lights can flicker on, and they do so by faith. So what difference would it make if Jesus Christ and his ascension and his reigning and ruling at the right hand for you practically today? And I want to just point out three things from 1 Peter. The first one is chapter 1. You have a living hope, Peter says. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is living because Christ is still alive in his full human body, representing us and protecting our inheritance forever. Hope in the living hope is what Peter is about to command if you drop your eyes down to verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope on the grace that will be brought when Christ returns. The living hope is the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. So hope, hope in Christ, hope in the ascension. Second takeaway, we've just been working through as a church a series of commands that say, submit, submit, submit. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject, submit to every human institution. And then again, chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, you should submit and subject yourself to your masters. Wives, you should submit to your husbands. Submit, submit, submit. Take heart in that no matter how unjust or how ungodly your government is, your master is, your boss at work, your husband. Submission is ultimately a submission to Jesus Christ because the same exact word, hupatasso, is used in our text, 322. All angels, all authorities, all powers are submitting to King Jesus. So every earthly submission that you do in obedience to Jesus is in direct relation to their humble submission to King Jesus. Realize that. Take heart in knowing that every single human on this planet will, in heaven above, 
on earth below or even under the earth. Bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. This is what Philippians 2.11 promises. Third and final takeaway comes from the very next verse. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1. Notice the relationship of ascension, gone into heaven, at the right hand of God, and then chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He goes on to explain more about what it looks like to live for the will of God, but I want you to notice that there is an immediate sense. Therefore, Jesus suffered. He suffered on the cross. He died for unrighteous people. He did that. Why? To bring you to God. And the result was his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. It's a simple little takeaway. Realize that always in God's economy, the way up is down. The way to be lifted is to be humbled. Take on the mindset of Jesus. If you would like to strive for glory, then become a slave and a servant willingly and serve those around you in your home, in your neighborhood, community. So notice that there is a direct application link that the sufferings of Jesus resulted in the glory of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And in the same way, we are told as Christians that we should humble ourselves and then God will exalt us. In fact, if you turn your eyes to chapter 5, you will see Chapter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. There is an exaltation coming for people that are Christians. It requires humility and hope and perseverance trusting in the Savior who has died in your place, and God rightly exalted him. So put your faith and hope in the ascended Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this amazing reminder that your story does not just include death and resurrection. It includes a mighty exaltation, and that the ascension is not just a past event, but it is a present reality that can comfort us in our submission to unjust authorities and government or in the workplace or in our home. Oh God, we want to pray that we would have humble, submissive hearts, that we would willingly subject ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we would do so um, not out of compelled force, but out of love, out of the deep desire that you are putting in our own hearts to want to obey you. So Lord, we want to pray for good fruit to come from our time together and want to ask that as we leave from here, we will remember just how great it is that you have come and that you have died and that you have risen and rose again, not just from the dead, but risen to the right hand of the Father. We pray in Jesus' name now. Amen.